Chapter Eleven of the Blythedale Romance. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Blythedale Romance by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter Eleven: The Woodpath. Not long after the preceding incident, in order to get the ache of too constant labor out of my bones, and to relieve my spirit of the irksomeness of a settled routine, I took a holiday. It was my purpose to spend it all alone, from breakfast time till twilight, in the deepest wood seclusion that lay anywhere around us. Though fond of society, I was so constituted as to need these occasional retirements, even in a life like that of Blythedale, which was itself characterized by a remoteness from the world. Unless renewed by a yet further withdrawal towards the inner circle of self-communion, I lost the better part of my individuality. My thoughts became of little worth, and my sensibilities grew as arid as a tuft of moss, a thing whose life is in the shade, the rain, or the noontide dew, crumbling in the sunshine after long expectance of a shower. So with my heart full of a drowsy pleasure, and cautious not to dissipate my mood by previous intercourse with any one, I hurried away, and was soon pacing a wood-path arched overhead with boughs, and dusky brown beneath my feet. At first I walked very swiftly, as if the heavy flood-tide of social life were roaring at my heels, and would outstrip and overwhelm me without all the better diligence in my escape. But threading the more distant windings of the track, I abated my pace and looked about me for some side aisle that should admit me into the innermost sanctuary of this green cathedral, just as, in human acquaintanceship, a casual opening sometimes lets us all of a sudden into the long-sought intimacy of a mysterious heart. So much was I absorbed in my reflections, or rather in my mood, the substance of which was as yet too shapeless to be called thought, that footsteps rustled on the leaves, and a figure passed me by, almost without impressing either the sound or sight upon my consciousness. A moment afterwards I heard a voice at a little distance behind me, speaking so sharply and impertinently that it made a complete discord with my spiritual state, and caused the latter to vanish as abruptly as when you thrust a finger into a soap-bubble. "'Hallo, friend!' cried this most unseasonable voice. "'Stop a moment,' I say. "'I must have a word with you.' I turned about in a humour ludicrously irate. In the first place the interruption, at any rate, was a grievous injury. Then the tone displeased me. And finally, unless there be real affection in his heart, a man cannot, such is the bad state to which the world has brought itself, cannot more effectually show his contempt for a brother mortal, nor more gallingly assume a position of superiority, than by addressing him as friend." Especially does the misapplication of this phrase bring out that latent hostility which is sure to animate peculiar sects, and those who, with however generous a purpose, have sequestered themselves from the crowd, a feeling, it is true, which may be hidden in some dog-kennel of the heart, grumbling there in the darkness, but is never quite extinct until the dissenting party have gained power and scope enough to treat the world generously." For my part I should have taken it as far less an insult to be styled fellow, clown, or bumpkin. 
to either of these appellations my rustic garb it was a linen blouse with checked shirt and striped pantaloons a chip hat on my head and a rough hickory stick in my hand very fairly entitled me as the case stood my temper darted at once to the opposite pole not friend but enemy what do you want with me said i facing about "'Come a little nearer, friend,' said the stranger, beckoning. "'No,' answered I. "'If I can do anything for you without too much trouble to myself, say so. "'But recollect, if you please, that you are not speaking to an acquaintance, much less a friend.' "'Upon my word, I believe not,' retorted he, looking at me with some curiosity. And, lifting his hat, he made me a salute which had enough of sarcasm to be offensive, and just enough of doubtful courtesy to render any resentment of it absurd. But I ask your pardon. I recognize a little mistake. If I may take the liberty to suppose it, you, sir, are probably one of the aesthetic, or shall I rather say ecstatic, laborers, who have planted themselves hereabouts. This is your forest of Arden, and you are either the banished duke in person, or one of the chief nobles in his train. The melancholy Jacques, perhaps? Be it so. In that case you can probably do me a favor. I never in my life felt less inclined to confer a favor on any man. I am busy, said I. So unexpectedly had the stranger made me sensible of his presence that he had almost the effect of an apparition and certainly a less appropriate one, taking into view the dim woodland solitude about us, than if the savage man of antiquity, hirsute and cinctured with a leafy girdle, had started out of a thicket. He was still young, seemingly a little under thirty, of a tall and well-developed figure, and as handsome a man as ever I beheld. The style of his beauty, however, though a masculine style, did not at all commend itself to my taste. His countenance, I hardly know how to describe the peculiarity, had an indecorum in it, a kind of rudeness, a hard, coarse, forth-putting freedom of expression, which no degree of external polish could have abated one single jot. Not that it was vulgar, but he had no fineness of nature. There was in his eyes, although they might have artifice enough of another sort, the naked exposure of something that ought not to be left prominent. With these vague allusions to what I have seen in other faces as well as his, I leave the quality to be comprehended best, because with an intuitive repugnance, by those who possess least of it. His hair, as well as his beard and moustache, was coal-black, his eyes, too, were black and sparkling, and his teeth remarkably brilliant. He was rather carelessly but well and fashionably dressed, in a summer morning costume. There was a gold chain, exquisitely wrought, across his vest. I never saw a smoother or whiter gloss than that upon his shirt-bosom, which had a pin in it, set with a gem that glimmered in the leafy shadow where he stood, like a living tip of fire. He carried a stick with a wooden head, carved in vivid imitation of that of a serpent. I hated him partly, I do believe, from a comparison of my own homely garb with his well-ordered foppishness. 
"'Well, sir,' said I, a little ashamed of my first irritation, but still with no waste of civility, "'be pleased to speak at once, as I have my own business in hand.' "'I regret that my mode of addressing you was a little unfortunate,' said the stranger, smiling, "'for he seemed a very acute sort of person, and saw in some degree how I stood affected towards him.' I intended no offence, and shall certainly comport myself with due ceremony hereafter. I merely wish to make a few inquiries respecting a lady, formerly of my acquaintance, who is now resident in your community, and, I believe, largely concerned in your social enterprise. You call her, I think, Zenobia. That is her name in literature, observed I, a name, too, which possibly she may permit her private friends to know and address her by, but not one which they feel at liberty to recognize when used of her personally by a stranger or casual acquaintance. Indeed, answered this disagreeable person, and he turned aside his face for an instant with a brief laugh, which struck me as a noteworthy expression of his character. Perhaps I might put forward a claim on your own grounds to call the lady by a name so appropriate to her splendid qualities, but I am willing to know her by any cognomen that you may suggest. Heartily wishing that he would be either a little more offensive or a good deal less so, or break off our intercourse altogether, I mentioned Zenobia's real name. True, said he, and in general society I have never heard her called otherwise— and, after all, our discussion of the point has been gratuitous. My object is only to inquire when, where, and how this lady may most conveniently be seen. At her present residence, of course, I replied, you have but to go thither and ask for her. This very path will lead you within sight of the house, so I wish you good morning. One moment, if you please, said the stranger. The course you indicate would certainly be the proper one in an ordinary morning call, but my business is private, personal, and somewhat peculiar. Now, in a community like this, I should judge that any little occurrence is likely to be discussed rather more minutely than would quite suit my views. I refer solely to myself, you understand, and without intimating that it would be other than a matter of entire indifference to the lady." In short, I especially desire to see her in private. If her habits are such as I have known them, she is probably often to be met with in the woods or by the riverside, and I think you could do me the favor to point out some favorite walk, where, about this hour, I might be fortunate enough to gain an interview. I reflected that it would be quite a supererogatory piece of Quixotism in me to undertake the guardianship of Zenobia, who, for my pains, would only make me the butt of endless ridicule, should the fact ever come to her knowledge. I therefore described a spot which, as often as any other, was Zenobia's resort at this period of the day. Nor was it so remote from the farmhouse as to leave her in much peril, whatever might be the stranger's character. A single word more, said he, and his black eyes sparkled at me, whether with fun or malice I knew not, but certainly as if the devil were peeping out of them. Among your fraternity, I understand, there is a certain holy and benevolent blacksmith, a man of iron in more senses than one, a rough, cross-grained, well-meaning individual, rather boorish in his manners, as might be expected, and by no means of the highest intellectual cultivation. 
He is a philanthropical lecturer with two or three disciples, and a scheme of his own, the preliminary step in which involves a large purchase of land and the erection of a spacious edifice at an expense considerably beyond his means, inasmuch as these are to be reckoned in copper or old iron much more conveniently than in gold or silver. He hammers away upon his one topic as lustily as ever he did upon a horseshoe. Do you know such a person? I shook my head and was turning away. Our friend, he continued, is described to me as a brawny, shaggy, grim, and ill-favored personage, not particularly well calculated, one would say, to insinuate himself with the softer sex. Yet so far has this honest fellow succeeded with one lady whom we wot of, that he anticipates from her abundant resources the necessary funds for realizing his plan in brick and mortar. Here the stranger seemed to be so much amused with his sketch of Hollingsworth's character and purposes, that he burst into a fit of merriment, of the same nature as the brief metallic laugh already alluded to, but immensely prolonged and enlarged. In the excess of his delight he opened his mouth wide, and disclosed a gold band around the upper part of his teeth, thereby making it apparent that every one of his brilliant grinders and incisors was a sham. This discovery affected me very oddly. I felt as if the whole man were a moral and physical humbug. His wonderful beauty of face, for aught I knew, might be a removable mask, and tall and comely as his figure looked, he was perhaps but a wizened little elf, gray and decrepit, with nothing genuine about him save the wicked expression of his grin. The fantasy of his spectral character so wrought upon me, together with the contagion of his strange mirth on my sympathies, that I soon began to laugh as loudly as himself. By and by he paused all at once, so suddenly, indeed, that my own cachinnation lasted a moment longer. "'Ah, excuse me,' said he, "'our interview seems to proceed more merrily than it began.' "'It ends here,' answered I, "'and I take shame to myself that my folly has lost me the right of resenting your ridicule of a friend.' "'Pray allow me,' said the stranger, approaching a step nearer, and laying his gloved hand on my sleeve, "'one other favour I must ask of you. "'You have a young person here at Blythedale, of whom I have heard, whom perhaps I have known, and in whom at all events I take a peculiar interest. She is one of those delicate, nervous young creatures, not uncommon in New England, and whom I suppose to have become what we find them by the gradual refining away of the physical system among your women. Some philosophers choose to glorify this habit of body by terming it spiritual, but in my opinion it is rather the effect of unwholesome food, bad air, lack of outdoor exercise, and neglect of bathing, on the part of these damsels and their female progenitors, all resulting in a kind of hereditary dyspepsia. Zenobia, even with her uncomfortable surplus of vitality, is far the better model of womanhood. But to revert again to this young person, she goes among you by the name of Priscilla. Could you possibly afford me the means of speaking with her? You have made so many inquiries of me, I observed, that I may at least trouble you with one. What is your name? He offered me a card with Professor Westervelt engraved on it. 
At the same time, as if to vindicate his claim to the professorial dignity, so often assumed on very questionable grounds, he put on a pair of spectacles, which so altered the character of his face that I hardly knew him again. But I liked the present aspect no better than the former one. "'I must decline any further connection with your affairs,' said I, drawing back. "'I have told you where to find Zenobia.' As for Priscilla, she has closer friends than myself, through whom, if they see fit, you can gain access to her. In that case, returned the professor, ceremoniously raising his hat, good morning to you. He took his departure, and was soon out of sight among the windings of the wood-path. But after a little reflection, I could not help regretting that I had so peremptorily broken off the interview, while the stranger seemed inclined to continue it. His evident knowledge of matters affecting my three friends might have led to disclosures or inferences that would perhaps have been serviceable. I was particularly struck with the fact that ever since the appearance of Priscilla it had been the tendency of events to suggest and establish a connection between Zenobia and her. She had come in the first instance as if with the sole purpose of claiming Zenobia's protection. Old Moody's visit, it appeared, was chiefly to ascertain whether this object had been accomplished and here to-day was the questionable professor, linking one with the other in his inquiries, and seeking communication with both. Meanwhile my inclination for a ramble having been balked, I lingered in the vicinity of the farm, with perhaps a vague idea that some new event would grow out of Westervelt's proposed interview with Zenobia. My own part in these transactions was singularly subordinate. It resembled that of the chorus in a classic play, which seems to be set aloof from the possibility of personal concernment, and bestows the whole measure of its hope or fear, its exultation or sorrow, on the fortunes of others, between whom and itself this sympathy is the only bond. Destiny, it may be, the most skilful of stage managers, seldom chooses to arrange its scenes and carry forward its drama, without securing the presence of at least one calm observer. It is his office to give applause when due, and sometimes an inevitable tear, to detect the final fitness of incident to character, and distill in his long-brooding thought the whole morality of the performance." not to be out of the way in case there were need of me in my vocation, and at the same time to avoid thrusting myself where neither destiny nor mortals might desire my presence, I remained pretty near the verge of the woodlands. My position was off the track of Zenobia's customary walk, yet not so remote but that a recognized occasion might speedily have brought me thither. End of chapter 11